I'm George Roy Hill. I was the director of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Well, I'm Conrad Hall, and I came to this film because George had seen the professionals and liked the way it was photographed. I'm Bob Crawford. I directed the documentary on the making of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and we're going to talk about the production and our recollections of making the film. The fellow who shot this silent movie is Mickey Moore, the second unit director, and so Mickey was a white-haired elderly man when we started this film. Mickey's first meeting with George was not a good one. Uh, he showed up on location when they were scouting these locations and uh, introduced as the second unit director, and George was saying, that's great and pleasure to meet you, but I don't think I'm going to need a second unit director on this picture. He really wanted to direct the action sequences himself. And I think always uh, a little nervous about somebody who would have an opinion on how things should be done. But Mickey, being a silent film director, uh, directed all, a lot of second unit for C.B. DeMille, was a wise man and didn't push the situation, just went along and uh, made his suggestions straightforwardly. And I think by the, the end of their scouting trip, George knew that Mickey was indispensable in creating good action and planning it out to uh, the nth degree and knowing what he'd see up on the screen. So though George wanted to shoot every frame of his picture, we got out there on location and he realized he'd never get it all done. He had Mickey go out and shoot this opening silent movie himself for us and turned out very well. This uh, title material that you're looking at now uh, was done by a dear friend of mine uh, who's no longer with us, um, cameraman that I uh, operated for on the second unit of Mutiny on the Bounty, Harold Wellman. He shot the, uh, the uh, second unit um, uh, title material. Harold was a great guy. We had a lot of fun for a year on Mutiny on the Bounty. And uh, I used him uh, when I became cameraman. Uh, I used him to help me out uh, when we were shooting first unit uh, to do these titles. They're beautifully done. George didn't want to do a simple, realistic casing of the bank where you'd be back on long shots and see the whole situation. He created an atmosphere about it by staying in close and getting the little bits of the, the windows being shut, uh, which is I uh, looking around the bank, the guard coming out of the dark. You never really see what that bank was like. It's just uh, an atmosphere that he's creating. And uh, that's stepping away from the traditional Western, where you're standing back, seeing the whole town, the dusty town, and, and stylizing rather than straight storytelling. One thing nice about this as I'm looking at it is that you can see the eyes. It's really, really interesting. To eyes have so much to do with acting. I've always been somebody um, that liked to see the eyes because I feel it's the focal point of, uh, of acting. Whereas if you don't see the eyes, it's the sort of focal plane of filmmaking. It's, um, it's deciding how best to uh, create the mood or 
feeling of um, of what you're doing. Good stuff. I like I like the, what George did here with uh, uh, choosing inserts to tell the story, and um, um, I think it's very effective. Oh, this is a good shot. I operated this myself, actually. Um, and uh, it's operating is a joyful part of picture making for a cameraman because you get to, like, get the image exactly the way you want it uh, rather than interpreted um, uh, by an operator after you've, um, you know, led him or her to, uh, to what you're striving for. Let's just you and me play. The problem I had here is that Butcher features a relationship between the two guys. Redford was almost a complete unknown, and Newman was at the height of his popularity. I wanted to use the first scene as an introduction to Redford, to give him a little weight, to give him some stature as a player. I don't know of any picture that starts with a long close-up of an unknown. Redford came into the picture when I finished reading the script, and I thought Redford would make a great Sundance. But nobody agreed with me. The people who were in charge of Fox were appalled when I said I wanted to have Redford play Sundance. They said he was a playboy, and McQueen helped me by saying that he would play either part, either Butch or Sundance. I called him on it and said, all right, you play Sundance. And he balked and took himself out of the picture. That left the way clear for Redford, who I didn't know, though I only met once. But there was a quality about him, a laid-back quality, that was just right for Sundance. I called Redford and told him to hang on. If he wanted to play the part, I'd do my damnedest to get him the role. So he was sitting there in the wings waiting to be called, and they decided to give the part to Warren Beatty. Beatty also turned it down, and there was a big fight. I had to call Paul. Paul didn't know Redford either but I had to call him and ask him to use his muscle to get Redford on the picture. I'm over the hill, but it can't happen to you. That's just what I want to hear. Every day you get older, now that's a law. Goldman and George had uh, done all the historical research they could on the characters getting the Western gear and studying the Western films and the history of it and the lore of the Hole in the Wall gang. And the fact, they really did exist. They really did rob these trains. Uh, they blew them up. But what we have here in the script is really the myth of all of that. George knew, I think, immediately he was making a comedy when he got the story. But he approached it as a true story. And Goldman says at the beginning of the script, what follows is true. And what follows isn't true at all. It's a, a myth based on the facts of Butch's escapades and very stylized. And yet George, in stylizing it, wanted to get back to the atmosphere of the time, try to recreate it as faithfully as he could, studied all the old westerns, 
and felt he had to begin this film in black and white because that's how we perceive the past, especially the Western past. And in studying those still photographs we had, originally we were going to start with still photographs. We ended up using the silent movie instead because that was going to play back in a tense sequence down towards the end of the movie, a scene we ended up cutting. But he wanted to stick with the sepia and rather than just boldly start out with this scene in black and white, wanted to set it up with the silent movie. Mike, I've been telling over the hill. Look at that vista. Oh, wouldn't you love to live out in a place like that? It's fun photographing a, a piece that's uh, in such beauty, natural beauty as this, and to like get to know it and choose the locations and wander around and picnic in it and um, look at the light, the way it falls and all of that. It's, I should be paying them rather than the other way around for, <laughs> to do this job. Mm, I remember this. This is Upper Bryce or Upper Zion. Mm, I love this place. I go back every now and then. When I was doing commercials with Haskell Wexler, I'd go back and sit around and look at the old spots that we shot in like this and see what was left and think about the passions involved uh, getting this on film the way we have. Very proud of this picture. How can I be so damn stupid as to keep coming back here? George has a theory about films and uh, particularly about films on outlaws. And I think he, the most successful films he feels generally are about outlaws in our society, renegades, uh, perhaps because it's the natural conflict they create with their environment and their society. Um, there are probably lots of writing on the theory behind that. But it's something that I always felt squeamish about because I felt we were celebrating their aberrant characters. Uh, I suppose there's a certain escapism we get by uh, participating uh, as voyeurs in their escapades uh, and maybe venting our own uh, outlaw uh, tendencies. Uh, I guess that's what uh, the whole theory is be behind uh, kids venting violence by watching it, by playing at it, and not, in fact, living it. I think as you mature, you become uh, more sensitive to the hard realities of violence. And yet, uh, in this picture, uh, one of the things that really attracted George was that Butch could run one of the most vicious gangs of his time, and, and did, apparently, and uh, yet was himself able to get through most of his life without any uh, having to participate personally in actually killing people. And for the most part, even harming people. He used his brains rather than his brawn or his gun to uh, get his way. And apparently did it with a great sense of humor as well. Now, Sundance, we've been checking the banks. No banks. I love this film because it's about something terribly contemporary, about people's jobs being put in jeopardy by the advance of, uh, of uh, technological advancement and that super posses and uh, 
super posses and um, invincible jails, and banks, and things like that. What are you going to do if you're a bank robber for a living? <laughs> Become a box boy at a grocery store? He goes his own way, like always. What's the matter with you guys? When I came here, you were nothing. You weren't even this particular sequence, we ended up shooting twice because uh, we had to shoot it, uh, as you see here, overcast clouds. The first three days we were out there, it was bright, bald skies, uh, which uh, drove Connie wild trying to shoot into uh, the, the backlight of that. And then when it became overcast, everything became very flat lit. And uh, then Connie said, well, there was nothing we could do. We had to shoot the scene over again in the flat light because he couldn't match what he had done in the, in the backlight. So we went back and we shot most of it again in the flat overcast light. And then there were these occasional shots in post-production. I can't tell you which ones right now. We ended up using from the bright sun backlit scenes. And uh, so George ended up in the cutting room using a bit from every day which led us to believe that we could have probably shot this scene, and as we have done in, in future films, whatever the light is, you just keep going. But we added two days to production schedule so we could get this scene shot again because of the light problems. I don't want to shoot with you, Harvey. Anything you say, Butch. Very contemporary story. Those are the kind of films I love to get a hold of and don't often get a chance to do stuff that like goes on forever about some basic and important human uh, condition that uh, is bigger than all of us and will go on forever no matter in what era it's set in. I feel really privileged to have been part of this story. There's something about this violence that uh, is uh, palatable for me though. You know, it's not about blood, not about body parts falling apart and um, things like that. It's uh, Plenty violent, huh? but... They worked very hard on this next shot in the editing, in the previews, and getting it by the uh, censor board, 1968. I don't think anybody had been kicked in the balls up to that point on the screen, not in Panavision. And uh, it became a fight with the censor board on just how long we could hold on this moment. Well, thank you, Flat Nose. That's what sustained me in my time of trouble. Hey, what's this about the flyer? Well, Harvey said we'd hit it both this run and the return. He said nobody's done that to the flyer before. And no matter how much we got the first time, they'd figure the return was safe and load it up with money. Harvey thought of that? Yes, sir, he did. Well, I'll tell you something, fellas. That's exactly what we're going to do. This is great. This train goes from Durango to Silverton in Colorado. It's a narrow gauge, but it's beautiful. Lloyd Anderson had tremendous heartburn in not having been on the pre-scouts of our locations and having to move the people from Hollywood to Durango, Colorado, and a particular town called Silverton because there is one narrow gauge railroad available to, to film for, and had the topography to film that first train robbery. And uh, 
and Lloyd, who's a practical fellow, always, I'm sure, would challenge why we had to go to Silverton, Colorado, where they had no hotels for anything but 15 people and have to start our days early up there and truck in the rest of the people. Uh, but uh, half the crew on our first location stayed down in more civilized territory. The stars and a few people went up to do rehearsals and, and do the preliminary setups for our first day shooting in Silverton. And we met at the halfway point at that gorge for our first day's filming. You got a patriot in there. Okay, go ahead, Nooth. That's young Woodcock. He's awful dedicated. Woodcock? Yes, sir. You know who we are. Uh, you're the hole-in-the-wall gang, Mr. I've worked with this gentleman. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. He's a famous playwright. Jesus, what a famous playwright. He's written a lot of stuff. Great actor. Wonderful playwright. Getting yourself killed. Dynamite's ready, Butch. Open the door or that's it. It's George Firth. Yeah, George Firth. Wonderful. <laughs> Great writer. I work for Mr. E.A. Terriman of the Union Pacific Railroad. And he entrusted me! You can see by the size of that explosion and one that will follow later on that there is nothing realistic about the blasts in these films. But they're good movie and good storytelling. This scene was a problem because it was one of our first days shooting and Newman had gone back to trying to play Butch comic. And uh, George and he wrestled right here outside that boxcar for several hours uh, trying to bring Newman back to his rehearsal performance uh, and, and playing it real as opposed to having any uh, idea in his head that he was going for a laugh. Just robbed the flyer right outside of our town, so that makes it our responsibility Get out there and get after them. Now you're going to have to bring your own horses. Uh, how many of you can bring your own guns? Yeah, well, uh, how many of you are going to want me to supply you with guns? This is uh, back on the Fox lot. I don't think it exists anymore, actually. It's all office buildings and trailers. During these days, they, there was still... I don't know whether this was before Century City or not. Uh, I remember being an assistant cameraman shooting on the Fox lot and using uh, the area that's now Century City. Um, oh, I remember this shot. Big crane, night. Nice shot. All right, you two. I want you with my priority. One thing George hates doing is shooting his films out of continuity. Uh, because of uh, production needs, uh, we had to be up in Colorado for that train sequence. We came down to Hollywood uh, from, well, after Colorado, we ended up in St. George where we did a lot of the chase and then came back to Hollywood where we shot some of these scenes, like this one, uh, on the back lot at the Fox studio. And uh, it's always fun when you're shooting uh, your movie on the back lot because you, you walk down the modern sound stages and, and around a corner and they're stuck between two sound stages is a quarter block of a western street and you're able to create this whole saloon by keeping within, you know, half a block uh, area of facades. And uh, of course then you have the luxury of being able to light it 
and have all the, the studio equipment at hand. And uh, they throw dirt down on the concrete, cover it up for a block, and uh, create your old Western town. Experience, maturity, leadership, and then we end up officers. That'd be Major Parker. Parker. Yeah, that's my real name. You can run into all kinds of continuity problems in terms of, of your actors' attitudes, where they are in the movie, where they've been emotionally. Uh, we had shot a, a large part of the Super Posse chase, which had uh, taken place before we shot this scene. So you'd be Major Longbaugh. What do you say? <laughs> we ended up shooting this picture in large bits from one location to the next, in continuity when we get to the location. But it meant putting it together as a puzzle. Well, what do you say? I say this. I say ladies and gentlemen. We ran into a problem in doing this scene because the fellow who had been cast as the bicycle salesman caught a cold or couldn't show up, and uh, George uh, was without his casting director and, and called back east, uh, I think, the day or two days before shooting the scene, and I think we were in St. George and on the dead run, of course, being two days behind to come back to the studio and shoot this night sequence the next day. And he called Marion Doherty in New York to say, okay, I can't get the guy we read, the guy I want. We can't get the backup guy I want. He's not available. Send me somebody. And it speaks to having worked with Marion for, I think, 15 years from the uh, live television days, that uh, she said, I'll send you somebody. And he didn't know who he was going to get until the morning. And I forget the name of the actor now that plays the bicycle salesman, but he showed up, and George was thrilled with him. I remember the night they had come back, I think they had, they had already been chased for two weeks out in Utah by the super posse and were all dragged down. And I think particularly Newman uh, was struggling to get back into the frame of mind at this point in the movie when he was doing the scene with uh, Cloris Leachman. And uh, Redford's taking off to meet Catherine Ross and we had done all of Catherine Ross' sequence already in Utah. Nice, huh? Going across there, lights coming up, lighting lamps and things. This was shot right on location in uh, Virgin, uh, Utah. Right in the actual bedroom that this little house was in. It wasn't built. It was there. All adobe building. I don't recall how George cast Catherine for the part. She came on the picture basically because I thought she was the sexiest girl I'd ever seen. And she was just ravishingly beautiful. And I was pretty much blind to any other possible talent. It's okay, don't mind me. Keep on going. <laughs> 
Catherine Ross and I uh, met on a film and uh, fallen in love. And um, we were together when I had agreed to photograph this film, and uh, Catherine had gotten um, an offer to do this film. And I thought to myself, oh boy, this would be wonderful to like be in love and go off and work together. And, and so many unusual and wonderful things happened of it the Academy Awards, love and friendships with those two men. Um, with the crew that I worked with, Jordan Cronin with. Definitely was one of the great experiences in my life. Is that a beautiful woman or not, huh? Pretty handsome guy, too, isn't it? Shake your head. Mmm, what a nice shot. Jesus, I love seeing that eye just buried in the darkness there. You can get sexy without being, without showing anything. Um, just like this kind of thing, you know, the unbuttoning, the undressing. It's always interesting to do love scenes. Catherine's such a fine actress. Had a lot to this film. Still using my black and white techniques here in lighting color. Um, took me a while to come around and into soft light and things like that. This is still uh, if uh, this is still about liners and things that create separation with the background. I wish that once you'd get here on time. are mine at the place. Mine. You hear me? Mine. All mine. Your soft white. I remember when we were trying to pick uh, music for this in the editing of the film that uh, George uh, never was really satisfied with that scene until we got uh, the um, song from The Graduate, the uh, Simon Garfunkel uh, 59th Street Bridge, I think it was, and uh, he actually edited the film to that music. And so we had this pastiche of, of uh, little bits of music and classics that George had put together when he ran the picture for the first time for um, Burt Bacharach. And it was so eclectic that I think it sort of uh, freed Bacharach up to do something more modern in uh, the scoring of the picture than he might not might otherwise have done. Bert Backrack and I were called in by the studio early in the game and we were shown a rough cut to see if we were interested in doing the movie. Bert was to do the background score and he and I were to do what originally was to be two songs. We loved the film and decided, yes, we would do it. It was such a happy-go-lucky scene, the sunshine so bright, and there was uh, Butch Cassidy on the bike having a great old time when everyone knew from watching the film that Butch Cassidy was a guy in all sorts of trouble. Things always went wrong with him. Raindrops kept falling on his head. Looking at the scene and trying to tell the story of Butch Cassidy was what we accomplished, I believe, 
It was a visual image in my mind because I saw one thing outside and I saw something else inside Butch Cassidy. Basically, you know, Butch Cassidy seemed like the most happy-go-lucky fellow there was, and yet he specifically was a guy who everything went wrong. Uh, Bird wrote this kind of happy-go-lucky tune, a particularly wonderful melody, in my opinion, and then a lyric that sort of went against that melody, I think, caught what the scene was all about and perhaps accomplished the success of the song. I sat and wrote the first lyric, which probably took me a couple of days, and then tried another turn at it, and I wound up with the two lyrics called Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, and I took what I thought was the best out of each and put it together. We played the song for George at Bert's house in Beverly Hills. He liked it immediately, and uh, there wasn't anything to sell. He just, he heard it, he liked it, and he said, that's it. B.J. Thomas turned out to be just a wonderful choice. This bicycle sequence is not in the script uh, as a musical sequence. Uh, it's uh, something, I think, a, a week or so before production that George had meetings and final meetings out of rehearsals and going into rehearsals with Goldman and, and came up with the idea that he wanted to do three musical sequences through the course of the picture, and this being the opportunity for one of them. They didn't really have dialogue scenes in the course of the picture to establish his relationship with Etta. George wanted this opportunity to cement the relationships of the three characters and really establish Etta's friendship with Butch in the course of the picture. There's very little known about Etta Place. Uh, I know they made films after this and Catherine playing Etta Place, and I haven't seen those. Um, I just remember reading articles at the time, and it seems to me uh, not too distant past. There's more research done on the Butch story and Etta, and they still really don't know what became of Etta. George makes good comments in the documentary about uh, his feelings about Catherine playing her and casting her in it. Um, but his uh, theory was that Etta was probably one of Fanny Porter's prostitutes. And uh, just how close a friend she was to Butch, uh, as well as Sundance, is left to speculation. But he always felt there was something there, probably, of a three-way relationship that couldn't be shown in the time that we made this picture and probably had nothing to do with uh, the picture they were making anyway. But uh, she had, a, he felt, a much closer relationship with Butch than they portrayed in this telling. Okay. Open up in there. I work for Mr. E.A. Terraman of the Union Pacific Railroad. Hey, Woodcock! Butch? You okay? Uh, well, sort of. Hey, that's wonderful. Let's take a look at you. Well, now, Butch, you got to have more respect for me than to think that I'd ever fall for a stunt like that. This is one of the sequences where we really go beyond reality and play for broad slapstick. Well, don't play for it, but get broad slapstick out of 
this story that George is shooting as a true telling of the Old West. Oh, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of any man. I'm a grandmother and a female, and I've got my rights. we got no time for this. You can bull all the others, but you can't bull me. I've fought whiskey, and I've fought gambling. I can certainly fight you. we got no time for this. What are you doing? Son, there's no need for Let violence. Go, what are you going to do to her? Let go. Whatever you're me to. Me? Well, leave her alone. You're after the money, and the money isn't here. Please. All I want is for somebody to start this train. Somebody, please. Open the door, Woodcock, or tell her goodbye. I don't know how George uh, saw it in his mind, but uh, we were working on this balsa wood railroad car, and in fact, what they have in there had been laced with dynamite, whatever they use for blowing up the uh, boxcar, uh, movie style. And uh, it was just a riot to see the set, that boxcar crawling with special effects men, wiring it all up, getting it ready to blow apart. And uh, you have to know that in real life, anybody who was standing within a hundred yards of it would have been nailed by splitters and bits of flying safe and murdered. <laughs> and we had our cameras all barricaded under plexiglass and, and uh, framed with plywood, and uh, everybody was standing back on the hilltops when they set it off, except for the stuntmen. And yet, you're able to get away in the telling of the story that these guys can be standing in front of it come away unscratched and gleefully pick up the money. I think it's one of the miracles of this picture that uh, they can get that broadly slapstick and at the same time come back to the reality of the super posse, start killing off their comrades and move on with a sense of uh, humor, I guess the irony of life in face of death and uh, loss, and experience uh, such a, an amusing adventure, make such an amusing venture out of their lives. George worried about the arrival of this train and how we were going to get six horsemen bursting out of that boxcar where you could probably get about three horses all in at one time. In his faithful reproduction of reality, uh, he went back to stylizing again in cuts and close-ups. And you see in the documentary how they got that shot. I had five cameras on it because it was a dangerous shot galloping down the railroad cars halfway through the shot. I saw to my horror that Catherine was operating one of the cameras. So I kicked her off the set. I got into a bit of a hassle with George on one camera. I remember Catherine wanting to like operate a camera one day. <laughs> and uh, so I set up uh, where the other five were to be pointed and uh, and she operated one, and I followed focus for for a big It was just, you know, sort of a joke, not a good one. We didn't appreciate it, and we had a bad time about it, and it's all forgotten, I'm sure. I used uh, long lenses here uh, to, like, keep them close, keep the 20th century 
prevalent and uh, right on top of you uh, and immediate and yet totally distant uh, because it's a, a, a long lens look. And I felt it was a good technique for um, the thematic uh, material of uh, being put out of the business. But This is the part where uh, George said uh, before the picture started, he was busy rehearsing. He didn't have enough time to start uh, rehearsing his actors, and he, uh, he wanted to. And he tore out 60 pages of script, and he handed it to me, called me into his office, and said, Conrad, I haven't got time to go and figure this out. It was the chase. And uh, he said, um, um, like, take this and go on up and pick the locations and uh, figure it out and I'll abide by what you say. You know what I mean? It's the only way we'll be able to get it done. So um, I did that. The chase, this is all the stuff that uh, locations that I picked out and everything. and. Uh, on stage, the where people would come from and go to, and uh, all that kind of stuff, and and actually, uh, uh, George was certainly true enough to his word. Uh, this is like one single shot, following them all the way from a long shot to to a close up there, and uh, with a zoom lens, without dollying or a helicopter or anything else like that. This is a different way of treating uh, this kind of material, I would say, than normal old-fashioned westerns. You think lost him? No. Neither do I. Take our horses out back, will you? Feed them good and keep them out of sight. Her sweet face. Just inside. Trouble? Listen, you dirty old man, I know you're a lion thief. The bicycle sequence we saw earlier was shot uh, the same night this scene was shot, and uh, we were trying to make up for our two days behind schedule. And uh, I can't remember again, Newman had some problems in, in doing the scene with uh, the horror, whatever it was, trying to keep uh, his sense of humor. We can't even see, but I remember having long, him having a long discussion about that scene with uh, the lady. And Cloris Leachman was a lot of fun in it. I think we, we missed it. What it is, is there was a whole scene that we probably cut out that they improvised in the room there. Most uh, George's actors come from the New York stage. And uh, they can improvise a scene readily. Um, they're not uh, brought up as television actors or actors that have simply worked from a script and, and do bits and pieces <clears throat> of their story. They have whole characterizations figured out and they look at a script and see the whole story rather than uh, coming to work for just a bit of a scene. So somebody like Cloris Leachman, when she's hired on to do just a scene in the film, still, I think, brings with it a, a whole history. And so uh, the scene we don't get to see is something of a characterization that she brought that really uh, relaxed Newman in the course of shooting that scene and uh, breathed a lot of life into it. You're the only real man I ever met. You know that, Butch? 
But I didn't have uh, gels on the windows or anything. I just lit the interior to balance with the exterior. This is, of course, night, and it's easier to do it because you can balance it the way you want to. This is back on the lot at uh, Western Street and Fox, back lot. Clothes, wow. Getting down to the deed, in those days, uh, you had to take a lot of clothes off, huh? Not like the piano, though. Jesus, the piano. Think of what you had to do in those days. It's setting up this super posse that we never meet. It's a whole character that uh, both Goldman in the writing of it and George in the directing of it uh, create this uh, omniscient... Uh, undefeatable force in the super posse. They, they come out of that boxcar. They uh, are dogging them at every turn. They think they've lost them for good in this first uh, section of the film, and they show up there at the uh, horror house, and uh, Newman trying to get those horses to, to scare off. The horses are obviously indefatigable and trained to, to await their master's orders. Uh, the idea was that uh, the inevitability of uh, civilization, of uh, the future overriding the past, that these members of the super posse, that they're not going to be shook off the trail. This is a bright day. That was the sun glistening off the water. and. And um, then um, printed, uh, underexposed, and printed down. Um, I don't like day for night myself, but uh, and it's pretty much all day for night. You'll see some shots that look, but moonlight, you know, is as bright as day sometimes. This looks somewhat real to me. I, I'm not standing by the controls here. I might like take the brightness down a little bit. you figure we've been watching. Oh, wow. How long before you figure they're not after us? Well, longer. How come you're so talkative? Naturally blabby, I guess. See, that's the sun. And, uh, oh, see the lights back there? Those are men on horseback, each with their little battery pack and uh, a, a sun gun. And um, I just instructed them to aim it straight at the camera. No matter whether they were riding left, right, or anything else, uh, we wouldn't see them but we would like see the effect of uh, lantern light that um, they would ostensibly be carrying. This is absolutely 
not realistic at all, but uh, dramatically, I guess it works uh, for Moonlight. You know, I hate Day for Night. Who are those guys? See this shot here? Those are men with uh, sun guns riding towards us with lanterns. Well, that's not them. It works pretty good. Obviously not them. I never saw Redford do anything like that. <laughs> I don't think he'd be willing to do anything like that. Not that he isn't a daredevil. Jesus is the daredevil. And we have the same technique, uh, our posse with, um, with <clears throat> supposed lanterns, but they're actually sun guns aiming straight at us. I didn't get to time this picture because the head of the camera department at Fox at that time, uh, can't remember his name, dead now, um, was a very strong uh, influence uh, at Fox and had been there for decades and decades. And uh, he took it away from me for some reason. I don't know why. Normally a cameraman times his own picture. Um, I guess because I had sort of really unusual ideas compared to what he was used to um, about overexposing and uh, underexposing. Here I would have had this a lot darker and all that kind of thing. This night sequence was shot during the day. You can see the sunlight on the hills there in spite of the lights. It's a whole technique of shooting day for night. And uh, it's one way you can get detail over distance. You ever really shoot at night, you can't see down a storefront without lighting it, and shooting at night means you have to get arcs, and uh, even with modern lighting equipment, just tremendous amount of power to light just two blocks of distance. But uh, you can shoot uh, during the day, and with stopping down, see uh, a quarter of a mile, and still get the atmosphere that you're shooting a moonlit night. I love this man. Uh, we did in cold, not in, yeah, in cold blood. He played the one of the killer's fathers, um, and he's a wonderful acting teacher, and a great, great teacher, great actor, great person. All right, what do you want? A couple of things. We want to win this race. Came up a little fast, didn't it? Looks overlit to me. I think I'm better at this now than I used to be. Maybe not. This is a scene that they rehearsed and rehearsed and rewrote and wrote again, trying to get the George hated expositions. And I, and I think it's Newman, too, but uh, inherently felt that the movie would come to a stop in this scene. They're outlining what the plot is, what's going to happen next. And they're also trying to get the emotion of these guys recognizing that they're past their time. There's the odd thing here about the law collaborating with the outlaws, the fact that these outlaws really aren't bad guys. They have an affection uh, that the authority there, that the sheriff has an affection for them that's out of place. 
as I guess we, an audience, have an affection for them. And uh, as we've worked uh, in this storytelling, they haven't killed anybody yet. I get sort of paranoid about uh, Newman's eyes because uh, when we were doing Cool Hand Luke, I shot a uh, shot of him standing in line with other prisoners um, in backlight, and uh, so that there was very subdued lighting on his face, and and um, I got an edict from the front office to do a retake of the close-up. Um, so I said, what's the matter? And they said, uh, they couldn't see his eyes good. I said, what do you mean couldn't see his eyes good? I could see him perfectly, so I shot it again. I didn't change it much, and uh, uh, came back again, reshoot it again. I reshot it five times before they finally just said, look, we want to see his baby blues. We paid for his baby blues. We want to see him. Now, for God's sake, put some light in there so we can see them. And so I did, but even though it doesn't match the longer shot. I just couldn't get over that somebody was paying me to be out there in that country on that particular day and enjoy this vacation and this uh, beauty and nature and freedom that you get to go into spots of national parks and uh, parts of the world you never otherwise find yourself in the course of making a picture. And you get to sit there for a day and uh, experience it and at the same time be producing something that will be entertaining and uh, a good commodity around the world. And it's just uh, one of the great thrills of all time to be able to participate in making a film and participate in the vacation, I see it, of getting out there and uh, having the, the luxury of being able to produce while you're experiencing uh, a brilliant part of the world. I also remember uh, getting letters from home, though, from my wife. Not happy that I was gone. I had just married, and she was not the least bit happy that I was out there playing with the boys for two weeks while she was sitting home with nowhere to go. <laughs> At the time, we had no children. She had nothing to do, and she was not welcome to go on the set, and I was desperate to get her out there and uh, couldn't because I was uh, a lowly, quote, dialogue coach, really a production assistant on the set. And uh, even the, the key people didn't bring their wives, particularly at this point. Our production manager was not one for having family and friends on the set and not when we're two days behind for sure. And uh, traveling from one location to the other, there just wasn't housing for them. The company becomes responsible for them, and uh, it's very rare that uh, the crew or the cast in this period of producing films would bring family along. And it could often mean that you'd be gone from your family for three months or, or six months, as I was uh, in later productions, from home. 
uh, and while that breeds a camaraderie on the set and amongst your team, and it's like going out to camp, it can be very hard on home life. And it, it was still pretty rare for a film to go and be made on location all 12 weeks of production uh, when we were making Butch. Uh, it was a big expense, even in those days, and I think we made Butch for about six and a half million dollars. But those were $68, and I think that's probably like $20 million production today. And uh, so it was uh, a real gamble for the studio to spend that money and send us to Helengon, up to Colorado and Utah, and then down to Mexico and various spots in Mexico, and send a good part of the Hollywood crew with us, even into Mexico. Baltimore will try to Oklahoma. He's strictly an Oklahoma man. I don't know where we are, but it sure as hell is in Oklahoma. Oh, it couldn't be him. It couldn't be him. I guess. Whoever it is, it sure the hell is somebody. Great country. Can you imagine getting paid to go out and, and roam around all day long and be fed well and, uh, and uh, climb these mountains and uh, enjoy all of this stuff? Wow. So much fun telling stories with pictures. You can... It's really a complex kind of thing to do. It's as complex as writing music or writing stories, you know, that kind of thing. And it's a language that uh, that's hard to get to know. It's a, as complex a language as uh, as music. You know, got 88 keys, and you can use them in any complex way you want to. But we got the sun and the, and the light. Jesus, is there anything more complex than light? I uh, I'm one of those guys who um, doesn't do a lot of augmenting. Um, but like who knows how to take uh, the accident and turn it into something wonderful, magical. Um, I look for that. I thrive on it. I feed on it. I don't invent stuff. It invents itself, and then I notice it and use it uh, dramatically. Um, and um, that's the way I've always been. It's, uh, I don't like figure things out ahead of time before the actors do. It would be wrong for me to think of like figuring something out for an actor to do. I'd like to see what they want to do. Then I'd like to like uh, um, see it in a very good way and or um, help dissuade them from it <laughs> into something else. But actors are the ones who bring the characters alive and, and camera, cameramen uh, you know are interpreters of their efforts. George let me figure a lot of stuff out, you know what I mean? He like uh, trusted me and um, we discussed everything about like how we should do this. For instance, I remember climbing cliffs and things like that. It's, uh, it's uh, how are we going to attack this? Well, you know, it's, I made a suggestion that why don't we go from extreme long shots to extreme close-ups and 
that way advance the uh, climbing up the hill and uh, it gives you a good sense of place and then you get into the nitty-gritty of the danger of it and all that kind of thing um, and he'd go for that stuff you know what I mean it's like um, it was all a collaborative talking process George has a history of a bad back and he was out there uh, with the train and climbing around all of these things, whether that had something to do with it or just the tension uh, that normally comes with getting started on your production. I was climbing up the side of a cliff with Newman to get the location of a shot I wanted to take. There was a sheer drop and then a kind of a level place for 15 or 20 feet, and then it continued on up. I got up the hill and then as I reached it, I felt my back go into a spasm. It just started to grab me. I was panic-stricken because I knew it was an attack that would affect my walking. I started to look around and there were no trees, nothing up there that I could hang on to. So I was running around looking for a place I could stretch my back out because if I stretched it out, it might not cramp. So I was running around and Newman said, what's the matter, what's the matter? I said, my back is going. I need something to hang on to to stretch so it won't cramp. Newman said, hang on me. So I ran over to him and put both of my arms around his neck and we both fell to the ground, and Newman started to howl. Can you imagine what people would think if they saw these two crazy guys embracing each other on the top of a mountain? And that was the beginning of a bad session with my back. They had to get me down from the mountain. That took all day. And then George made the production manager, Lloyd Anderson, swear that he wouldn't tell the studio about his incapacity for fear they are going to replace him uh, on the production because he obviously couldn't work if he was in spasm like that, and that if they were going to have to shut down production with the particularly Newman salary and the clock ticking, there was a good chance they would replace him. Uh, whether Lloyd ever told the front office what was happening, we don't know. But they packed George and Ice overnight. Uh, he was still in uh, agony, couldn't really walk for the next... Uh, at least week, if not longer. I can't remember how long it went, but we'd go out to the uh, set for the next week in a station wagon with George stretched out in the back. The prop people built a slab for him with just a little lip on it for him to, to sit up against this board, and he'd sit on that board propped up for the shooting 10 hours a day. I directed from the pallet. I had them build me a makeshift stretcher so when I was directing, I was like Lazarus rising from a grave. So I was able to function, but I couldn't get off the stretcher. I like to tell the story that they would listen to my direction just so long, and then they'd say, put him down, put him down. I was on that stretcher for almost the duration of the picture. The guys would lay him back down on the ground, and uh, they kept George's humor and spirits up as they went along, and through a lot of pain. Uh, directed, I think, the next uh, 10 days of the production, uh, remaining two days behind because of the, the problems we had earlier. This is a great way to look at a movie, by the way. Um, but it doesn't have the same emotional impact as a 30-foot screen 15 feet high has uh, 45 feet away from you. Uh, it's an entirely different emotional experience. The five factor, it's called, uh, being your distance uh, away from the screen and the emotional reaction that movement and, uh, and image size and things have to do 
um, my God, a face that's 20 feet high, um, 30 feet from you. What an unreality that is. Um, and that's what movies are about. It's creating that, that it's creating the emotional uh, aspects of that unreality that we call technique, uh, artistry, uh, craftsmanship and uh, using it to, um, to move the audience's emotions around. It's a great art form. And uh, boy, am I lucky that uh, I got a D-plus in journalism and had to change my major. <laughs> Saw this in the Liberal Arts and Science Manual Cinema in 1948. What a great time to get in on the ground floor of an art form that started turn of the century, which was 48 years earlier, right? This is all done in falling light, quickly because it doesn't last very long. It's called Magic Hour. And uh, I love this kind of technique of tight, cramped faces. And not cutting, you know, just letting it play. This kind of thing needs planning ahead because you know you can't do it in one night and that needs to be done in several nights and, um, and so you plan it very carefully. Don't make a big thing out of it. No, make a big thing out of it. Hey? It was Baltimore and Lafort. You know who else? Jeff Carter, George Hyatt, Hyatt, T.T. Keller. I think we shot this set on the stage back at uh, Fox. And I don't think it was, well, this and then the scenes inside Fanny Porter's saloon were these atmospheric night scenes that Connie would spend an hour and a half setting up. And about 20 minutes into it, George would start getting impatient and try to figure out how to explain that we weren't doing a Rembrandt painting, that we just wanted to get the next setup. <laughs> and uh, Connie had George's confidence in such a way that uh, he would take the time and do whatever it was that Connie and his crew would do to light these things. And it took a lot of time to get it lit the way Connie wanted it. You know something? I don't remember that. And something I never worry about is time. I work as fast as I know how. And um, we never seem to, like, um, that never seems to be a real issue. Probably inherited every penny you got. Here it is, guys. What the hell do they know? You say they're hired permanent? No. Just till they kill you. George Royce does a couple of weeks' rehearsals before production. And for scenes like this, particularly... Uh, the actors uh, 
have been able to play the whole film so that they have that sense of the story in them and their characters and the emotions they're playing throughout. And uh, in fact, this scene, this part of it, was shot in Kanab, Utah, and the scene we just saw previously, I think, was shot back on the stage in Hollywood because we didn't have time to be out on location to shoot this. They'd save a substantial sum by taking us back into Hollywood. In later years, George wouldn't put up with that. In later years, he would insist that we'd shoot the films as much in continuity, even if it required building sets on location to keep them in continuity. At, at this point in his career, he still had to split what they shot. It really irritated him. I remember shooting this scene that he's going to have to shoot the whole body of it weeks later. I remember it was about this time that George uh, was still terribly worried about the end of the movie. Uh, we'd be riding back and forth to those chase locations, and George in the back of the uh, station wagon laid out flat. And it was on one of those trips that he finally got the, the notion of how he'd shoot the end of the movie. He'd been doing some planning on the New York sequence and uh, had found out that he wasn't going to be able to shoot the New York streets at the studio because they were saving those for the Hello Dolly release. He'd come around to his stylizing the New York, the trip through New York into Bolivia and doing it in uh, black and white and doing it through photographs. And I think it was coming out of that and realizing that he didn't want to watch these guys die bloody at the end of our movie. It, it just wouldn't fit somehow. Uh, and he had, uh, I don't know that he had seen Peckinpah's pictures yet, whether Peckinpah, uh, I forget what the Peckinpah picture was at that time, but it came out contemporary with this. Uh, where people were being shot up in slow motion. And uh, he just knew he didn't want to see Butch and Sundance dead at the end of this movie. And that's when he said that he'd freeze frame. I've forgotten how much action George had gotten into this still sequence here. Still making stories happen and uh, as though it's a motion picture even in the stills. Though this seems a very musical film, in fact, uh, for the two hours, it's only got about 11 minutes of music throughout, including the title sequences. George is always trying to come up with music, or maybe it's just the way he, he visualizes things. Uh, music comes into his head because he has a fair background in music, I think was ambitious to be a composer when he was a young man, went to Yale uh, with the ambition to study music. George uh, ends up seeing things musically a lot of the time and pre-scoring a lot of his music uh, in The Sting. Uh, he, he knew he wanted to use Joplin before he started the movie. And Little Romance, he had picked out the Vivaldi themes as he was working on the script.
There was some trouble getting me on the film because I was asking for a lot of money. Um, and uh, um, Paul Newman had to come to my help. I remember Zanuck saying something like, uh, what is he reading scripts for? Why do you give a cameraman a script? He shouldn't give a cameraman a script. Um, not young Zanuck, this is older Zanuck. And uh, it took Paul Newman uh, to like um, make it a big deal in order to get me on the picture. When the front office found out that I wanted Connie Hall as a cinematographer, they went up to Spout. They said, you can't have him. I said, I've already got him. And Stan Huff, who was the head of the production, was infuriated. But he finally came around in the end and thought that Connie did a beautiful job, which he did. It's magnificently photographed. George had looked at a lot of films, but he had heard that Connie had a great style, and he wanted style on this picture. And uh, outdoor filming that he, George, didn't feel sure of how he would get what he wanted or what maybe he wanted. But he did want to do it with style and uh, decided that Connie was the cameraman he wanted and called up the head of production and, and asked for Connie. And the head of production told him he could have anybody but Connie. I guess Connie had some reputation for being slow or tough or had a, this particular head of production just knew with certainty it was disaster to hire Connie for this picture. Lloyd Anderson so happened to have just finished a production in the Pacific and a tough one with Connie and swore by Connie being professional and good and able. Um, and so when George first met Lloyd, uh, and Lloyd came in and he's saying, look, I'm having trouble getting my camera. I'd love Connie Hall for this. And Lloyd said, well, you should have him. I can't see any problem in getting him. I think this was also the first picture Lloyd did at Fox. And so George said, please go over and tell the head of production, what are you telling me? And Lloyd said, be glad to. Went right over there and got his head bit off by the head of production and told he was headed out of Fox if ever he came in with a harebrained notion like that again and stormed back over to George's office and let George have in no uncertain terms that he was ever going to be sent into the lion's den again, <laughs> that he would come back what was left of him to finish George. And George got such a great kick out of Lloyd sticking up for himself that, of course, Lloyd became a lifelong friend and, uh, and Lloyd went back after the head of production with George's backing to demand Connie. And we ended up getting Connie, and Connie uh, stood by us and uh, won an Academy Award for the picture. I remember this place, wow. You had to be careful where you stepped here, that's for sure. <laughs> but they're beautiful locations. Oh, I love Mexico and Mexicans. They remind me of my own people, the Tahitians. Um, big on family, big on food. I was born in Tahiti, um, wonderful mother and father. My father was a writer, wrote Mutiny on the Bounty and all of those, uh, Hurricane, Men Against the Sea, Pitcairn Island, all of those wonderful 30s and 40s uh, romantic novels. Uh, my mother's uh, part Tahitian, so that makes me part Tahitian. And I love the part that is Tahitian. Plenty of coconut between my ears. This is down in Mexico, and I can't remember what part of Mexico. I think it was between towns as we were moving from Cornavaca to the Vista Hermosa on the way to uh, Tosco, which is a, a little way out of Acapulco. But we, we made three stops in our 
six weeks in Mexico for locations. And we had uh, a certain amount of anxiety coming into Mexico City and getting all of the equipment and that part of the American crew through. And mainly it was the customs, getting the cameras and being sure everything would come through is a tricky business when you're in production. It's something I didn't have to deal with, but I remember the blood pressure of our production manager coming down there and making sure that uh, the facilities would be livable, that everything would arrive and be there, and that we'd land and be filming within a day of our arrival in Mexico City. I don't know how Newman and Redford stayed healthy, but they did. And George had been down to Mexico on a scouting trip about six months before and had gotten deadly ill for about two weeks, so he'd somehow become immune by the time we went back there. And I stayed healthy for the first three weeks, and then I got the touristas and was laid up with a good fever for a day and a half. And almost everybody in the company, it was, it was like, uh, sort of like being at war. You'd show up the set and the cameraman wasn't there one day, or the head grip was out the next. And uh, as it turned out, we had an excellent Mexican crew working with us, and they always filled the gap wherever we we'd come in. And it's probably part of our security blanket that we took as many key people down there as we did. I know in uh, our later productions, we'd end up with uh, just four or five people from Hollywood, and everybody else would be either French or German or Italian when we'd go filming outside the country. But at this point, when we were in Mexico, I think we had 50 people down there of the crew. So it was Hollywood come to Mexico to make the picture. But we'd also have uh, a, a matching department head and, and crew member, Mexican, for every one of our crew people. And as they go through it, they became more and more uh, free about letting the, the Mexican crew uh, do the work. And uh, of course, uh, Connie's key crew were always doing the photography, but the gripping, the building of things, uh, getting ready, were done in collaboration with the Mexican crew, and they really carried the load while we were down there. What's good about this film is it doesn't take itself seriously. There's nothing important. Everything important being said is left. It's not really said. It's just there. You know what I'm saying? Uh, when people get too specific about like messages and things like that, it gets to be um, something the audience doesn't want to like listen about. They don't want to be told lessons. Or they don't want to go to school when they go to the movies. But it doesn't mean that you can't like put lessons out there. You just have to do it in a way that is more subtle. Both George and Newman had this real fear of horses. I can't recall how many westerns Newman's done but it was really not here back in Utah. One of the first scenes on horses, there was something to do with Newman being reluctant to have to be on the horse or to be on it or be around them or staging the scenes around the horses. He was afraid he was going to get kicked a good one by one of the horses because the horse recognized, he was sure, his innate fear of the horse. <laughs> and that would make the horse nervous just being around him because it made him nervous being around the horses. So Newman was really frustrated and I think angry with George at one of those scenes having to deal with being around the horse. There was a time when during the robbery I was busy setting a shot up. 
and he came over to me and said, don't make too much noise around my horse, because my horse is a studio horse, and he knows the words action. I said, fine, I'll remember that. But I didn't remember it. And when the time came, I yelled action, and Paul's horse went apeshit. He was riding off into the sunset at full gallop with a hit Newman on top of him, yelling, Hill, you son of a bitch, I'll get you for this. He always thought I did it on purpose, but I didn't, I just forgot. We were shooting dozens of different locations. There were long setup times, getting the, the equipment out to a distant spot, hiking up hills, bringing it down, and then racing on to the next far off spot. But Newman and Redford and George spent a good deal of the time making small wagers. And I can't remember what the sports wagers are or film minutia, uh, who did what, who was in what play. I think there was a lot of that, who, was, uh, who played so-and-so, and it was some secondary character in some film that nobody would know but George, because George directed it or had studied it. And I think it came a lot probably out of the study that George put into this film. He, he ran all the westerns, Gunfighter, Shane, Gunfight at OK Corral, knew the directors, knew the cameramen, really knew the films. He always got a big kick out of the sporting cast. Redford has a very substantial ego about his knowledge, I think, about film as well as his physical prowess. And George sort of found the weak point with Redford was challenging him in his physical ability. I, and Redford got a lot of fun poking at George, who was laid up during a lot of this and being carted around on the board. Actually, it, it had started before that, in our very first day going up to Silverton on that narrow-gauge railroad. We were sitting in the boxcar, and Redford wanting to do all his own stunts and jumping on the train and uh, running around the moving train, and George trying to keep him from breaking an ankle or something and preserve his cast, teased Redford, saying that Redford thought he could be... Uh, pretty good at any sport, uh, skiing, and Redford was a near Olympic caliber skier, uh, and also loved to play tennis and would go out with our other production assistant and play tennis. George never was very much into physical activity, was a good pianist. Somehow the conversation got around to George saying, I bet you I could beat you at a physical game, and Redford said, sure, pick it, pick it. Name the contest, and so George picked fencing. He picked it because I had been a pretty good college fencer and he had in the back of his mind, I didn't know at the time, that he was gonna set Redford up, and then because of his bad back, bow out and get me to fence him, and put down a good sum of money and watch me beat him handily. They got that bet going uh, along here, and George kept dogging him because he kept beating them on little $2 bets on who was in what movie, and kept winning. Every, every time they'd have a wager, George would win the bet. And while George was recovering from his bad back, and then actually was making good progress. He started setting Redford up so that in the motel room, he'd have my fencing bag out and, and he'd get Redford to come by and he'd quickly be trying to stash the foils away and let Redford catch him practicing and getting in shape. And Redford being a stage fencer, you know, figured you know, with his left-handedness would be able to handle George easily whenever the time came. I'm going to stick with this until I drop dead on the set someplace, uh, or like uh, 
I mean, I'm going to try my hand at directing too for a little bit, uh, but I'd, I'll never call myself a director. I just want to be the final word in telling the story at some point. And um, I feel that I have helped d directors, and so I like, um, um, feel qualified to be able to do this uh, thing. And, uh, it'll be fun to talk to actors rather than not talk, talk to a actors. <laughs> Cinematographers are not supposed to talk to actors, and I, uh, I respect that. Uh, it gets confusing when there are too many people talking to you. So, uh, but I enjoy, I'll enjoy being able to talk to actors and uh, hearing what they think and, um, and uh, deciding um, on uh, how to approach characterization and all that kind of thing. It'll be, be wonderful. Looking forward to it. What do I look for? Oh, my cinematographer. Uh, somebody who won't give me too much trouble when I want to do it my way. <laughs> It's like Richard Brooks said. He said, uh, when I first walked on the set of The uh, Professionals, I, before I had a chance to do anything hardly, he said, uh, I suppose you want to be a director someday. And I said, well, geez, I hadn't. Yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm not thinking about it right now. I can tell you that. And he said, well, he said, probably everybody should direct uh, at least one film. But, you know, you may find out that you're you're really suited to it, or you may find out that it's too much work and you're not suited to it, that your talents uh, lend to something else. Uh, but whatever, direct your own film. Don't direct mine. It's got to wait for us, right? To pull another job? Well, what if there isn't another job? I mean, he can't arrest us and he can't take us out of here. We'll drive him crazy. We'll outlast the bastard. We'll go straight. So you want jobs. Oh, I love this man here. Oh, too bad he's gone. He's one of the best character actors of all time. It's Brother Martin. We did Cool Hand Luke. He's the one who said, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Remember that line? <laughs> he's so good. Strother here plays the, the minor. He's a great uh, Olympic diver, I think, in his youth, as I was told. And never could quite picture that talking to him. He became good friends with George over the years after this picture, and uh, they'd often get together. And Strother would always end up, uh, whenever they get together, bringing George some really obscure rendering of a Beethoven or Mozart concerto on these little cassettes. And uh, George has a great collection of cassettes, mostly from Strother that he listens to now and then, because George is a big uh, fan of classic music. Now this is in La Paz, in an actual silver mine, way up high, beautiful country, oh, Lord in heaven. Mexico is such a stunning country. So is America. So is Canada. Jeez, I've been <laughs> shooting all over the Americas now, and uh, they're, they're all just Nature is wonderful, and what people have done with nature and, uh, in terms of building the things that, that we use, like, you know, the old mines. And, um, I was in Toronto recently and in Vancouver, Canada, working, and oh, those cities and surrounds are incredible for motion picture stories to be told in. 
It was also during this point in making the movie that uh, it finally became the moment of truth with George and Redford over the fencing contest. Newman had gotten wind of what the setup was going to be, and uh, Newman knew that I was a fencer, and so started working on me to throw the match, as it would be the one chance he'd get back at George for all the bets he had lost during the picture. And in fact, in one of the sequences uh, earlier, uh, he showed up at the set with $10 worth of pesos. Well, it was about, you know, 800 pesos to the dollar. So there were the 8,000 pesos in bags that he had dumped at George's feet at the beginning of one of these days over some bet that he had just lost. And then I remember him taking me aside during one of the long setups to explain to me a book he had read. I can't remember the book, but it was all about the philosophy of double dealing and <laughs> or some, some very obscure philosophy, but a good rationale on why you should let the boss down. And uh, <laughs> my meal ticket, in this case, with Mr. Hill, but he had me pretty well convinced that I'd be doing a much better thing than I'd ever done before if I'd lose this match. And so uh, I was greatly torn, and I think only salvaged by the lucky counsel of my wife that if I threw this match, I'd not see her again. <laughs> and so trying to balance that and Newman's charm and star power and, and my certain knowledge that uh, George would not forget whatever happened if I, I threw this match, that I had better do my best to beat Redford. So we got uh, George on that day we were going to have the contest. Uh, Redford walked by his room and, and noticed that George's back had it, had a big falling out. In fact, George, I think, for two days before the contest, walked around with a rock in his shoe to remind him that he'd have to occasionally limp and let it be known and seen that he was in delicate condition. And then when uh, Redford saw that indeed he's never going to get Hill out on the court's defense, George threw the curve and said, look, today's the day, regardless, I'm going out there to fence. And Redford said, no, no, look, we've gone this far. We want you to finish the picture, George, and I can't be on my conscience if you throw your back out and can't finish this picture. I understand. And George said, fine, fine. You'll do anything to get out of my proving my point. Here, here's the hundred dollars. You take it. I, you win by default. And Redford says, no, no, I won't win by default. We'll just forget it. Forget it. And he said, no, Redford, I know you and you won't forget it and you won't let me live this down. Look, I'll tell you what. What if I get a stand-in for me? And whatever the, the term was he used, it was a better one than that. But he said, look, I know anybody on this set could beat you at fencing. Even Crawford here could beat you at fencing. And I'm the, this little guy who obviously can, can't do much around the set. So Redford fell for it and said, fine, fine, let Crawford fence. And we got out there and went on guard, and, and they got the whole company out there on the tennis courts. And they got the stuntmen out there to referee, and the stuntmen know a lot about stage fencing and have no idea about actual fencing and who gets touched where. But they were going to referee it, and to get a touch, you have to have four judges, and they have to see the, the fellow being hit in the fair target, which is anywhere between the neck and, and below uh, and around the waist. And so uh, 
we, we went on guard. And the moment I went on guard, Redford gave me this double take. You could see through the mesh of the masks that he recognized that I knew more about fencing than he did just by going on guard. <laughs> and he howled. He started screaming, ringer, ringer, Hill, you've set me up, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and, and I was trying to just uh, get through life at that point. And I figured I have to, to end this quickly. So uh, we, and he said, no, no, I'm going through with it. And we went on guard and I hit him right away and nobody saw it. <laughs> and I, I, I did what they call a flesh and I hit him squarely in the chest and nobody said anything. And I said, Jesus, I guess I'm gonna have to be very clean about this. I'm gonna have to, so I started to fence with him and, and try to make very simple direct attacks and he'd, he'd parry him and he was left-handed and that made it a little more difficult to see on one side. And so I hit him again and nobody saw anything and then I tried to hit him again and he hit me. And everybody's hand went up, and before I know it, it was one nothing. <laughs> and I said, "Well, this is certainly right." And I so, and I worked harder, and I hit him, and I finally, before I knew it, uh, it was something like three all in a five touch bout. And I said, "I have to get these last two touches, and uh, make him absolutely clean." And he hit me again, and I was suddenly losing four to three. And I saw my life go before me, and I knew it was over. And I was trying to make him look good. I didn't want to make it look that hard. And so I had to hit him a few more times before we got four all. And, I, and he was a little bit better than I thought he was. I couldn't fence just neatly and disarm him and hit him square in the middle of the chain and make that beautiful attack. It became a brawl at the end and nobody would see anything and we'd be lunging at each other. Nobody broke any foils, but it was really a brawl by the end. And I had to, and I think he probably hit me before I ever hit him the final touch. But I think the guards, or should I say the stuntmen, decided I had better win the match and they let me. Tell them we're hired to take it back. It's our job. Tell them the money isn't ours. El dinero. No es nuestro. No, ya no es de ustedes. Ahora es de nosotros. Claro. <laughs> we'll try telling them again. It's our job. The money isn't ours. This was a important sequence to George uh, in terms of storytelling. He was really concerned uh, having made uh, a point in the story that Butch had never killed. And uh, he was concerned in doing this scene that it was going to become too bloody and turn the tone of the picture too serious to recover. And though the dynamics of the story now are heading towards a pretty grim end, There's something in the handling of it, the telling of it. Maybe it's just plain indestructible as Goldman felt. It's just too good a story to worry too much about the subtleties of mood change and, and swings. But um, they were greatly concerned that going through this shootout would turn the audience off and turn them against Butch and Sundance in a way that they'd not be able to recover sympathy for them and maybe even keep the audience with them through the end of the movie. As it turned out, it was absolutely no problem for uh, the story, but it is a problem we ran into in another picture with Goldman. In uh, Waldo Pepper, years later, we dropped uh, the girl off the wing, 
and it so turned the audience against the picture. It was the general feeling. It was a disastrous choice, and it's a it's an example of where a death in a picture can lose the audience for you. We have good detail in the documentary about George's conceptualizing on this scene and how what he saw in his mind's eye ended up not being something he could use and uh, going with a much simpler slow motion version of these deaths. There are other ways of going straight, you know. That experience doing that film, every film is one of the most enriching experiences that a person can have because it's so involved with the creative aspects of uh, telling the story for somebody to go and spend two hours looking at and uh, have their emotions um, moved about. And, and you have all of these experiences with all these fellow film people, you know, the, your crew and the actors. And, people on location, all that kind of thing, or in the studio, wherever. And it's a remarkable, it's like going to war, I guess, huh? or something like that, without the danger of uh, anything except maybe getting fired now and then. But I, I consider it one of the most wonderful things to be doing, to tell stories, and um, to be involved with them for three months, four months, two months, six months, whatever, and uh, then get on and do an entirely different experience with different people. And uh, it's a very enriching way of having a life, I must say. You mean home? I was thinking of it. We went down to uh, Cornavaca by way of Mexico City. And again, I remember Lloyd Anderson how he got through it without a heart attack, I don't know, because he was a production manager where all his emotions are out, out front there, and a lot of pressure was on him. But there were always traditional problems in coming into a foreign country with customs and getting things through customs promptly and being able to shoot the next day. And there was no doubt, I don't know what it was, something lost, probably Connie's lenses, and <laughs> getting him down there by horseback, you know, to be ready to shoot the next day. But we did shoot the next day in Tlayacapan, uh, Mexico, which was this village where we did the shootout. And uh, we did some of the other scenes. And George, of course, doing the other scenes before the shootout, everything he could shoot before the shootout scene um, in that little village. I do remember some tr trouble because the, the flies would be attracted to the lights. And of course, we're always in practical locations down there in uh, the adobe buildings, you don't knock out a wall <laughs> to get the camera in a corner. And even though it was fairly modern equipment, it was still pretty bulky Panavision equipment to get in there. And uh, every once in a while, we'd be shooting a scene with the Aeroflex because the Panavision no way could fit into the room, and the sound man would be getting the track that would be later dubbed. Jungle work for me. You're getting to be an old maid. Keep your old maid remarks to yourself if you don't mind. In the city and I work in the mountains, but from now on, jungle work is out. Are they those Yankees? Mm-hmm. Tell them to be quiet. Put the word. Creators. Creators. 
Here we are back in a little town. I can't, uh, Talia Coppin, was it? Yeah, Talia Coppin is the name of this little town. And uh, beautiful. It's got a gorgeous square and uh, the building from which we shot uh, the ending, uh, which is uh, the old city hall, I believe. This is an aqueduct behind here. Beautiful aqueduct. Yeah, that's a that's a timing thing that I would change. It's um, didn't like that <laughs> the way that was timed. But actually, perfection is not anything anybody should go for. You know, not the actors, not the director, not the production designer, not the cinematographer. Life is not about perfection. It's about the the beauty and uh, and excitement in the imperfection of life. Huh? And I've never been somebody that could get a movie to look exactly perfect. Like, I see a lot of people do, do you know what I mean? Victoria Storaro's movies are all just absolutely impeccable. And a whole bunch of others, too. And mine are always sort of flawed, somehow or other. And in a way, I don't mind that, because it's not about perfection. It's about the overall feeling of the thing. And... Um, and in fact, to make something look better sometimes, it's nice to have it look ordinary for a while, uh, to create a kind of um, um, venue for, for, its, for the extraordinary stuff. Because if everything looks beautiful all the time, it gets sort of, eh, you know, too much sugar. We had a good time setting up this final sequence. George spent uh, the weekend before going over it, and he really had spent months trying to figure out just how he'd choreographed this last sequence. And it was this sequence that he uh, relied heavily on Mickey Moore in helping him stage uh, the steps of it. Again, he was back to reality, George was, in that he wanted these guys to have six shots in their pistols and not 12. And he'd been fed up with all the westerns where the good guys, you know, are blasting away like with Mac-10s or something and never having to reload. So he had fun trying to figure out just how many shots were being shot in the beginning of the gunfight here and how far they could get and when they'd reload. And uh, the production designer laid it all out with sketches. That's all I got. And then he got out there with the special effects guys to get all these bullet hits figured out and what they'd do with actual squibs and, and plant them and uh, where they'd use their air guns and actually shoot bullet hits next to the actors' heads. And I thought it was pretty uh, nervy of both Newman and Redford to be sitting there while these little squibs would be going off in front of their eyes and let special effects men shoot at them as they'd be running across the square. But they had good faith in Mickey and George uh, setting it up that nobody would get hurt. And uh, for the most part, nobody was hurt until towards uh, our last day of shooting the sequence when one of the stuntmen, in fact, fractured a hip taking a fall that had been planned out and all the cardboard boxes put in place, and he managed to fall just in a spot that uh, they came apart 
a little too easily and let him onto the, the ground hard. And it was Newman's stunt double that had taken the fall and fractured his hip. This is before the days of, of video screens and everybody hanging around and watching things on the video screen. The director and the cinematographer would talk it over and decide what to do and then go out and do it and you trusted each other. And he trusted me to like uh, um, deliver an image that would tell his story for, you know, really well and, and, um, and I trusted him to decide what we needed, what we didn't need, and to do, and uh, um, and all of that was part of a of a mutual um, invention that doesn't exist much anymore, unfortunately. You know, more often than not, you're told what to do by somebody standing by a monitor talking to somebody that, like, uh, you're not sure what his job is on the picture, and uh, it's a I'm glad I, I had it this way. Uh, it's probably near the beginning of our Mexico stay that we shot this because it was convenient in uh, production to be at this location and, and the other locations we did for the chasing and the bank robberies and all were done towards the end of our location. So George, again, was concerned about getting these guys emotionally up to uh, the end of the movie while we were in the middle of it. And we did end up getting a, a company. I remember it was a lot of going around whether we were going to get uh, this company of uh, soldiers to come in uh, and dressed in their uniforms and uh, surround the fellows. Uh, I remember there's some production problem in being able to get them and then to be able to schedule it so that uh, they'd be able to stay there for just a limited amount of time. On the uh, final shootout here, George had such a complicated number of shots that he really, uh, in the first assemblages, became kind of discouraged about how it was going together. And I got a great thrill because I had been following it very closely and keeping all his notes and. Uh, making the documentary of what each shot was. So I had remembered over a weekend, I went through the uh, picture again with the uh, editor on it, and we recut a good deal of it and ran it for George. And he came back and said, my God, my God, it does work. It's good. So he gave me a lot of credit for remembering his notes. And you are all mouth. Well, so far you haven't seen the Mexican army except in, uh, in pieces, and those were all actors uh, with the company. So you haven't seen the Mexican army yet. It's only soon when they, uh, uh, it's right about here, the Mexican army. There are 500 of them. Beautiful, they've gotten their horses, they're so groomed, and um, it's a great corps. But it doesn't seem like a good way to fight wars anymore or anything else like that. Sargento Rico! Desmonte 20 hombres y que vengan con el teniente. 
¡Sargento! ¡Rodeme el zócalo y súbanse a la azotea! ¡Ahí, espérenme! Great idea where we should go next. Oh, I don't want to hear it. Change your mind when I tell you. Shut up. Okay, okay. Your great ideas that got us. Forget about it. I don't ever want to hear another one of your ideas, all right? All right. Okay. Australia. These guys are really sweating in there. Uh, that is glycerin on them, but uh, we shot that all on the location in, in one little nasty tight room with some pretty good humidity and heat. And uh, with the different angles and setups, it turned into a day and a half of shooting this, these two scenes they shoot inside that room. And uh, it's to their credit. They really did uh, keep their concentration for the day and a half shooting it. And I think... Uh, came up with two very memorable moments and performances. What about the banks? Endings are always hard to do in film. Uh, every picture I've ever been on, it's, you feel so uncertain how to end the story. You know what I mean? It's like the, such a responsibility to decide um, definitively what it should be. And um, it's always an area of last minute searching uh, to find the good way, the way that's lasting. When we get outside, when we get to the horses, just remember one thing. You didn't see the fours out there, did you? The fours? No. Oh, good. For a moment, I thought we were in trouble. Thank you.